Welcome to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm your host, Katie Quinn, and this is the pod where I talk with creatives and entrepreneurs about everything from food to travel and the discipline and drive to create. Passion begets passion. So come on with me and let's do this. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I have a kind of new format for today's episode. I thought it would be fun to kind of weave two interviews I've had recently together. Here's these two companies that do beef jerky. Well, one of them is technically Biltong, but that's really just semantics, as you'll hear the founder explain. Premium tender beef. Let's call it that. One is middle market and can be found in stores across the U.S. The other is a startup in the U.K. who's blowing up on Amazon. The former is Slant Shack. They've been around for seven years now. Back in 2012, Fast Company featured them in an article about how they're scaling artisanal jerky. I'll be talking with David Koritz, CEO of Slant Shack. The latter is Ember Snacks. They've been around for about a year with marketing that is on point. Their slogan is Feed Your Fire. They are poised to become a front runner in what the UK Times called the British boom in meaty snacks. I talked with Jack Mayhew, co-founder of Ember Snacks. And just for quick clarification, I did a little Googling on biltong versus jerky for any of you who are curious as I am. Biltong is air-dried, jerky is cooked. Biltong originates from South Africa and jerky is from North and South America. To the average eye and palate, they are very, very similar. So here's what it's like to start a jerky slash biltong company on both sides of the pond. Let's start with with David of Slant Shack. I talked with him in New York City at the Slant Shack offices in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. David Koritz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for being on. So let's start from the beginning. Why a beef jerky company? Because who doesn't want to run a beef jerky company? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so our story's uh, a little odd, but, you know, we didn't start out look to start a business uh, a group of friends of mine from college my friend josh was a big beef jerky fan growing up kind of in that year two post-college where you have your job and it's not as much fun as being in college and you start messing around in your apartment and you're like all these snacks that i'm eating kind of suck <laughs> i can make something that tastes a lot better and is made from better ingredients and will just be a whole lot of fun for me and my friends to make and all of a sudden you have like eight or ten people making beef jerky and you're like oh this is pretty cool it's a fun hobby we went to the Greenpoint farmers market which was like the original in new york city brooklyn food scenes before like smorgasburg existed before the whole artisan food movement really started. And we just sold our jerky in the basement of a church once or twice. What year was this? 2008, 2009. And so we started off at the church and we were written up in New York Mag and our website blew up. So we started to figure out like, huh, do we make this into business? Do we not? And for us, it was still a side project. At the end of the day, we had is me and nine other friends from school. Oh, wow. There were nine of you. There were nine of us. Up to this point, you've just basically fallen into it. Passion project, side project kind of thing. What were you going to school for? What did you think you would end up doing after school? Obviously beef jerky. <laughs> jerky major. Exactly. That's what, yeah. <laughs> I had studied supply chain engineering in college and worked in consulting. So I was setting up the production, how to run the business side of it. And so the idea was that we had nine or 10 people involved in the business and everyone had expertise. Yeah, everyone so, brought something yeah. unique and needed, necessary. <laughs> and in the early days when we were hustling and just pulling it all together, that worked. Yeah. But by the time we launched at our production facility, we already had some inquiries from Whole Foods. And oh, so we were like, what? yeah. And we were like, oh, this is going to be so easy, which of course it isn't. But in the, in the early days, we're like, oh, we have this beautiful system where we have all these people with, with expertise and we'll all have our full-time jobs. And we're like, oh yeah, this will just like keep going. 
Okay, so I'm going to pause the Slant Shack story right there. And I'm going to bring in Jack to talk about the birth of Ember Snacks. Jack began the company with his brother, Harry, and I talked with Jack in the Ember Snacks headquarters in London. Hi, Jack. Hello. How are you, man? Really, really well, thank you. Yeah. You are British, of course. Of course. And you and your brother, Harry, uh, are your Suffolk boys. We're Suffolk boys, yeah, born and bred. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a couple of farmer's sons, actually. Um, and we've come to the big smoke uh, of London to uh, start a new business. Did you guys come to London knowing that you would start Ember Snacks? No, no. I actually used to live um, in the country, which I do miss a little bit, I must say. So near Cambridge somewhere and Harry moved down to London. We both actually worked in food and drink. And at the time that we started Ember, that was the time that we both had to be in London. So so I moved down for that, which is great. It has its massive perks, but equally, uh, I do miss a bit of green now and again. I suppose one of the reasons that Haz and I ended up getting into business together is from the age of like 12, we were working, working and scheming. You know, by the time we were 18, we were we're doing little projects together so what was the birth of ember snacks the birth of ember snacks was actually on a, a sunny day last year and has and i we've been training for triathlon by for kind of like two three months we can do an ironman which which we did um last year we ended up doing and we were kind of it was after i think like a training race and we, we basically just been snacking you know when you when you train for triathlons your appetite just goes through the roof like nothing else we we're just snacking on all sorts most sugary stuff found jerky and biltong and we were kind of like this is this is awesome it kind of fills us up sorts it out but what we then realized in the uk is every single product that we lined up didn't matter what brand you know we couldn't find anything that was like awesome and so you know we're both food and drink backgrounds work both worked in food and drink so we kind of started to look at it a bit more and basically it in the UK, pretty much all of the biltong and jerky in the UK is made by one manufacturer. So it might have a different label on it, but it's pretty much the same stuff. That's kind of when we thought there's a real opportunity here. That was kind of the birth of what we didn't know the name for at the time. And, you know, that was just over 12 months ago. Uh, nine months ago, we got our first products. In about six months from, from choosing or kind of deciding to do that, we, we had a product which was, um, you know, a lot of stress to, to get there. But Wow, you guys have hit the floor running. Yeah, yeah. It, it really has it has been um, a whirlwind and you know that's not without um, having a lot of support from kind of angel investors um, Giles Brook and, and Mark Palmer who have been incredible at kind of just helping guide us through that really uncertain journey and our, our previous employers were both incredible uh, incredibly supportive as well and kind of letting us go part-time and, and kind of follow that oh nice so you could kind of transition into doing this full-time yeah and, and that's kind of what made it more achievable Okay, now back to Slant Shack. Here's how it evolved after that first major breakthrough in the Brooklyn artisan scene when it was just this group of friends holding down other full-time jobs and just rocking the beef jerky thing on the side. How many of there are you? So today it's just me and I'm a regional salesperson. So that's that's a big change from how it started. Yeah, so about three and a half years out of college, I was in my first job consulting and I was like, all right, this is fun, it's fine, but I want to do something exciting and interesting. And the whole idea of Slant Shack was great tasting product that represents something fun. It was a great post-college hobby for our group of friends that brought us together and it was just something that we related back to those like days of college but the other side it also represented 
our view on life a little bit. We were healthy 20-something-year-old kids. We shopped at the farmer's market and we made great tasting food in our free time. So we didn't look to start a business. It was really just something that a group of friends were doing. And as it went from a couple bags of jerky a week to a couple a day to couple hundred pounds a week it got to the point where we couldn't continue to manage it as this side project and josh and i started talking like hmm what would this be if someone tried to do it full-time and that kind of just got me a little interested in saying all right like i have a good base from consulting but i know i want to do something more i want to do something that matters um something that has an impact and i mean this is a product that really kind of represents that. And this is before like so much of what's happened in the natural food space the last eight to 10 years where we've gotten so niche and focused on trends upon trends and different levels of innovation. The basic concept here was just like, let's eat better food that's sourced from the best ingredients that's made with integrity and made with transparency and tastes really good and is good for you. How much of your desire to take on this company and make it your full-time thing, I mean, that and that is a big step. How much of it was an entrepreneur spirit. I don't think I knew as a 25-year-old what that meant. Mm-hmm. I don't think I thought I was setting out on this entrepreneurial journey. It was just I'm ready for a different challenge. Yeah. Sometimes it's good to not look too far ahead, right? Totally. <laughs> and it's interesting talking about it seven years later and people use the word risk and risk averse and appetite for risk. And you don't even think of yourself as a risk taker. Mm-hmm. I think it's just an element of following a passion. And I knew the pieces that I was most interested in were the things that pertain to business, that pertain to some level of autonomy and opportunity to learn and screw up and (laughs) learn from that. And I guess this just felt like a fun thing. And if it didn't work within six months or 12 months, like, all right, I'll go to business school or something like that. Yeah. And then six years later, you're like still slogging. You're like, huh. But you couldn't have imagined any other sequence of events. But the striking similarity for me is the passion that each of these guys found in their path. So now going back to triathlons being the impetus for Jack and Harry, I can see like this is clearly a part of your life. And the fact that it aligns so well, professional and personal interests are really kind of one in the same life that goes so hand in hand. I think that's probably the case for a lot of entrepreneurs because... And I think triathlons probably have taken a bit of a backseat this year. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Starting up a business. Kind of taken over. It's really the love of the outdoors that we love, but the intertwining of starting a business and doing those sort of hobbies, there's probably a bit of a common theme there because the type of characters that like living this sort of life of kind of um, being slightly mad and also <laughs> always having to do something fits well with someone who wants to spend a lot of time on a bike and use up nervous energy or just energy and also that kind of startup exciting the, the startup life that I it is. I totally see how those personality types are so, kind yeah, of I'm one sure and the same. If, you, if sure if you've got a graph going there'd be some sort of uh, amazing correlation. Now let's get back to the products themselves that these guys are making. Here's Jack on Biltong. Your product is Biltong. Biltong Tong, exactly, yeah. And so for anyone who has no idea what Biltong is, what is Biltong? So it's really, it's, in, it's incredibly simple. It is probably about the most natural um, drying process of meat that you can go through. So if you kind of rewind the clock to where it came from, it was, uh, if you imagine an African climate, so hot and dry, Afrikaans used to hang up uh, beef or other meats under a tree let it dry for kind of around a week 
and then it's ready to eat. And that's, if you really strip it back, that's kind of where it came from. And to make good biltong, that's exactly what you really need to do. You obviously add a little, a little bit like cooking, you kind of marinate it and add a, add a couple of simple spices. And, and that's the art of making biltong. How are you going about educating people really yeah. on what biltong is? You know, we don't live in South Africa. No, exactly. <laughs> a lot of people aren't sure. And that's a really interesting journey that we've gone on over the last nine months, because it's very easy to uh, think when you're in the food and drink industry that people just, or if you know about something, you assume that others know about it. And our biggest opportunity to bring biltong and jerky, which is a niche category still in the UK, and bring that to the to the mainstream of snackers uh, is that education piece. But that said, we don't have to necessarily call it biltong or jerky. You know, if you really boil down what, what we are as a snack, we're premium tender beef. And it's kind of we, this is we're on this journey of realization that you know biltong for those who know it and love it is great and we need to call it that at somewhere on pack but what did, what what really are we and what what really is the product that we're selling it's premium tender beef and that's exactly what it is and now here's david because he's been in the industry since kind of the beginning of this artisan scene when he describes his journey and the company's journey it mirrors the industry's journey and how the industry itself has evolved over the past 10 years why is your beef jerky better well it tastes the best objectively speaking (laughs) um you know, I think our product quality just goes back to the earliest days. When you make beef jerky at home, it has a different texture than your generic truck stop jerky has. It's not that super shoe leathery thing. It has a, you can always undercook it. So there's a little more steakiness to it, which is super awesome. And for me, like who we are as a company is still rooted back to those early days because we weren't looking to start a business. We went in this, the less direct way to market, which enabled us to maintain this artisan component to the product and maintain the quality of it. It was, we were sourcing it locally, we were making it locally, we're using all the best ingredients and we were like true artisans. You know, I think that idea of the word artisan like is an old word and people think of a cobbler or, you know, a bread maker, someone who's like true craftsman. And now artisan doesn't mean anything. But when we first started out, we were very artisanal about our product and that quality you can't source it all locally when we were growing we would run out of beef all the time which is not good when you're a beef jerky company yeah that seems problematic so when we were starting out our facility was on the eastern side of vermont which is like no man's land it's called the northeast kingdom so we would run out of meat and we would have our production manager meet a farmer like 200 miles away in a truck stop off the highway and they would just like shuttle. <laughs> sounds like, sketchy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a drug deal. Yeah, yeah. And it was just over beef, same deal. Yeah. So we would just like move pallets of beef from one pickup truck to the other and we'd go on. Part of that issue was there's just not, for grass-fed, free-range, humanely raised animals, there's not a large supply of that, especially in the Northeast, seasonally, annually. And so as we grew, we needed to start finding robust supply yeah and and which must be hard when you are so picky about the kind of meat that's like a basis of what the company's built on yeah you know it was a little easier to some extent in 2012 13 and 14 when grass-fed beef was at the start of its growth trajectory where its consumption is up 
100% year over year since then. Wow. But in 2012 and 13, there wasn't as much supply. And so it was easier to understand what our supply was. Hmm. So we could go visit all the suppliers and understand and see the animals grazing on pasture. And even as we found larger suppliers domestically, it was still pretty clear what they were doing. In that time frame from 2012, 13, 14, as we started to grow, we outgrew our facility in Vermont and we moved to a larger facility in Illinois, so much of that market has changed. And there's so much more grass-fed beef out there at super low prices. And so you're always like, hmm, yeah. what's going on here? Right. And it almost makes the sourcing side of the business a lot harder when your brand is about transparency and doing food the right way. So doing food the right way is interesting because I think there are a lot of different opinions on doing food the right way. Do you ever have people questioning you on the sustainability factor of of what you're doing? I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between beef types and that not all beef is made the same. Not all beef is equal. Exactly. People equate beef with factory farming and that's it. And then people used to think, oh, but then there are happy cows. There are the grass-fed cows and they're all happy. And that's what it used to mean five years or so ago. But not all grass-fed beef is sustainably responsibly sourced, free range, humanely raised, regeneratively farmed. Our view is that food should be done better. And so, no, we shouldn't be eating as much beef as we do on a per capita basis. But the beef we eat should all be done right. And so what does right mean? And again, that goes back to what does grass-fed mean? A lot of people think, oh, I only eat grass-fed beef. I'm doing better for the environment. Well, if your grass-fed beef is fed a a grass-fed pellet instead of just feedlot-fed oh, grain. Oh, it's so tricky. Yeah, and you don't, no one knows what any of it means. Right. And the whole idea of the proper ecosystem is the animals graze, and they naturally graze on that land and rotate that land until the farm, and then you move it off of that. And that soil's been enriched because the cows are, like, plopping their feet down in the field and turning the soil, and that limits carbon emissions and it limits the runoff from the field and they move to the next field and then that field naturally renourishes itself and in a fully integrated system you would then bring the next animals on that are lighter and kind of continue that fully regenerative cycle not everyone does that part and none of that's regulated in terms of claims of sustainability and claims of humane and claims of environmental practices. It's That's why it's so easy to mislead. Marketing mumbo jumbo goes crazy. Yeah, I mean, on our package, we make very clear that it's free range, pasture raised, never, never ever confined to a feedlot, but not much grass fed food says that. So it's all just super confusing. Yeah, yeah. It seems like your marketing challenge is to break it down for people because it is it is so confusing. And so it's like, okay, this is what the situation is and this is how we are positioned. It's hard because you're limited in what you can say on a package. And that's where you see grass-fed jerky for $4.49, $4.99, and we're like for $6.99. Right. And I can't figure out, well, I can figure out like what that price difference is. Yeah. It's sugar content. It's meat sourcing practices. I think first off, the the tradition of the category is like it's not the most sophisticated. It's at Bubba at the truck stop and that's it. Yeah. But it's actually when it's done right, it's a healthy product. Right. When it's done right it's 
high protein, it's low sugar, it's low calorie. I don't know about you guys, but this conversation with David about the behind the scenes of the industry was really eye-opening for me. And it kind of just goes to show that you never know the challenges that you'll come across. Here's Jack again. You're you're a relatively new company. You're you're doing great things, um, a lot of success so far, it sounds. I mean, yeah. number one on Amazon, like those kind of statistics yeah, are like super promising. Yeah. But you know, in the scheme of things, you know, you guys are in this game for the the long run, yeah. right? This is the long game. This is a marathon for you guys. You you have totally. all these ideas of where you want it to go. So pausing at this kind of relatively nascent stage, what would you say to anyone thinking about starting up a food company? I think you always hear really similar feedback from people who have started a business. And I think the only thing that I could say is don't underestimate the um, sheer intensity on kind of personal life and kind of like mental stress you know you have real doubting moments at times you know everything the wins are the best thing in the world and the losses are just the hardest thing in the world it's a roller coaster and it's great um I think it's a really interesting point that you mentioned about the fact that when you start something like this, you know, we've got people um, who are invested in us and believe in us. We believe in ourselves, which is great. But, you know, there's a massive responsibility that that we f- we feel to make this a success. How do you already, how do you keep it quirky? How do you get yourself out of that place of, well, you know, we've head kind of already in covered the sand? It in that I think the th- the thing that keeps me sane and both Harry and I sane is the fact that we can go out and exercise and that is our release and our, our kind of like meditative state. And this is comes back to the feed your fire piece of, you know, meditation is part of feeding that fire or keeping it quirky. Feeding your fire is keeping, keeping it quirky. It quirky. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that's kind of in a nutshell what it's about. Jack Mayhew, thank you so much for coming on Katie the Keep It Quirky Quinn, it's podcast. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> and I want to give a quick shout out yes. to a listener, Anna, um, who actually we worked together at the Today Show Kitchen uh, years ago, almost a decade ago, I hate to say. <laughs> yeah. But Anna is amazing and she recommended that I talk to you guys. Exactly. So, yeah. Got to give a shout out. Yeah. Cousin Anna. Thank you, Anna. And it really is a small world. I was actually introduced to David through my friend group. And, you know, when I've met him in the past, it's always kind of been small talk. I was like, oh, that's really cool. You're the CEO of a beef jerky company, but you can't really get to the heart of these issues um, over small talk at a party. I learned a ton from getting the chance to talk to David for this podcast and hearing more about his commitment to that initial vision. Our vision is getting back to that part of how to really tell the story and have a conversation about the food we eat and what it means for us as individuals, what it means for us and the companies we support and the way we run our companies and what it can mean for the world on a larger level. Yeah, cut through the marketing BS. That's where the challenge lies, but also the opportunity. Totally. It just gets super hard in a world where we sometimes move past and don't totally pay attention to the details and we just want that big statement. And so for us, that's that's where that challenge lies is how do we tell our unique nature and our honest nature? Because I think in the end of the day, like those are going to be the companies that win. How do you keep it quirky? Because you are running this baller beef jerky company. You are grinding. You're making it happen. How do you be keeping it quirky? <laughs> you got to remember that it's just food. It's just beef jerky. You know, I think you just step outside of this office and you go look at this waterfront and like you're in this cool city. Yeah. And if it's riding your bike or going to yoga class or going on a hike, it's like, you know, how do you kind of get out of it and see 
that there's a larger world that you're a part of. David, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. To me, these conversations really kind of, it boils down to what I think a lot of the conversations in this podcast get to, which is that there are a lot of ways to start a business. There are a lot of ways to be an entrepreneur and to follow your passions. There is no one path. And I think it's helpful to hear all the many different kinds of paths there can be. Shoot me a note on social on the social medias at QKady on Instagram or the podcast Instagram is at Keep It Quirky Podcast. Holler at me on Twitter at QKady. I really want to hear from you guys. I want to hear if you enjoyed this kind of episode or if you're like, yo, Katie, just stick to the one-on-one, <laughs> like one conversation the whole time. I enjoyed this and thank you again to David and Jack. You are both doing really great stuff and keep up the awesome work. I'll see you all right back here next week with a brand new episode. And in the meantime, don't forget to keep it quirky. Oh, and did you think I'd forget to thank my brother for this awesome theme song? Nah, nah, nah. Brian Quinn, thank you for the rockin' theme song you made for this podcast. BQ knows how to keep it quirky, that's for sure. Thank you.